you can see all kinds of movies, but when a movie really, really does it to me, it's because it's, um, it's made me feel many different emotions during the course of it. And especially if I can pull off contradictory emotions that can actually work out. And I do believe that uh, I, I'm the kind of director that I'm, um, I, want to, um, I want to play you as an audience. I, I want to be the conductor and you're my orchestra and the sounds that I make you to make and the feelings I get you to feel and then I stop you from feeling those feelings and I give you something else to feel and then I stop you from feeling that and make you feel something else yet again. Um, well, if a director can do that, if a director can pull it off, well, that's a real lucky uh, 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 audience member because you've really had an experience that night. You went to the movies. That was worth leaving the house. December film fans, welcome back to an exciting episode of Not a Bomb Podcast. I'm your host, Troy, and with me is my bestest buddy, Brad. How are you tonight, Brad? I'm good. Troy, in Russia, movie watch you. Sorry. <laughs> okay. Where did that come from? I don't know. We're watching a Russian movie tonight, so. Oh, yeah. To... Hey, everybody else is doing the Christmas thing. We are not. We're talking about uh, some of our favorite bombs from 2020. So this week, it's an even episode. We're up to what, 28? Wow. 28, man. Congratulations. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. Um, and this was my pick. So Brad last week got to choose uh, what he considered his favorite home media release from this year. That was not a bomb. So if you go back an episode to 27, you can hear us talk about Flash Gordon with our bestest buddy, Josh, from the VHS Files. That was a fun episode, man. It, that, that time just flew. Um, tonight is my second pick for the month, so I got to talk about the theatrical pick, Mulan. And for the home media pick, I went back to something that came out in April, so right around when lockdown and everything else was kind of coming around, and um, wanted to talk about 2018's Why Don't You Just Die, with an exclamation mark. And it was put out by um, Arrow Video. So, and, and this was your... Christmas present from me. Yes, yeah, I was gonna, I was gonna say thank you for uh, sending this to me as a gift. Um. <laughs> I, can't, I can't wait to talk. I mean, it's yeah, I can't wait yeah. to talk about it. But listen, before we get into that, how about we start with some listener feedback? We we got some this week, right? Yeah, um, this first one comes from Kevin. Uh, greetings, Brad and Troy. Just started listening to the last episode about Flash Gordon, and you all were talking about the production effort put into the movie and makes it look good. This got me thinking about regardless of how well a movie is made, is there something that just takes you out of it? For me, it's bad wigs and wooden items. Oh. For example, in Aquaman, his father's hair when he was younger was something I couldn't get over. I don't remember. Was that, was that Boba Fett, Tamura? I think so. He was Aquaman's dad, right? Man, I don't I think so. I remember him bald or with a cap. Yeah. Now I got to go back and watch that. Boba Fett, he's pretty hot right now. I don't oh, know if heck you know yeah, that. man. Okay. Um, where am I? Okay. Why can't 
uh, he just have used his natural hair. In Temple of Doom, when the rope bridge broke and Indy was hanging from it, even though the exterior of the bridge looked old, you could tell that the broken wood looked new. Small things like these, for whatever reason, take me out of a movie, even for a moment. Love the show, Kevin. Wow, that's a good question, Kev. I will agree with the Indiana Jones. Even when I was little, I noticed that board, like, just it just always stuck out, out like a sore thumb. But mine. Oh, I can't wait for this. <laughs> this is ridiculous. I it, isn't thinking... it? Isn't it movies with a runtime like under seventy-seven minutes? Take you out yeah, of it. The, okay. no, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this one just always gets me because it's Teen Wolf. So it's a movie about a guy who, it's you know, it's a metaphor for puberty. So when he hits puberty, he turns into a wolf, right? A werewolf. That's not the. Yeah, a werewolf. Not just that's a dog. not the. Yeah, well, that's not the part that takes me out of the movie. The movie is the the thing that takes me out that I always notice is how bad the basketball in that movie is, and how Michael J. Fox, who is conservatively four eleven, mm-hmm. um, is playing basketball in high school, and it literally looks like no one has ever picked up a basketball or knows the rules of basketball. At the end of the film, he's actually shooting free throws. And the guy on the other team is standing underneath the basket, which is like completely against the rule. That's a lane violation. Like you can't do that. And every time I see that, it just gets me. It's like, how do you not get like the easiest part of basketball? Correct. So the guy standing underneath the basket in Teen Wolf is the thing that takes me out of Teen Wolf. So there. That I didn't see that coming. I think what you're saying is these inaccuracies of a sport that's part of the film takes you out of the film. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's there's ample examples of that as well. Um, but that one is the most egregious because you're just like, uh, did anyone even think about like whether or not this is against the rules? What was Again. the sport in Teen Wolf 2? Was it basketball or was it wrestling? <sighs> was that Jason Bateman? But Jason Bateman. I haven't seen that movie in forever. I can't either. Now I want to go back and watch Teen no, Wolf 2 just to understand what sport that they were doing. Yeah, I don't know. Well, I mean, if if you're if you got Michael J. Fox playing basketball and he's that short, the only way he's going to be a superstar is to turn into a werewolf. So for yeah. me, it makes total sense. Yeah, the car surfing I was totally fine with. It was the guys underneath the basket. It was the lane the- violation that totally yes, the took lane me out. Of it. Okay, yes. um, that's, man, that's a really good question. Most of the time, I, I got to say, I'm very forgiving, unless you're watching a movie like Samurai Cop or any any of the turkeys that we watched in November. Half of the fun is like pointing that stuff out, right? But I got to say the thing that always annoys me is people drinking coffee in movies. So it's specific when they get the cup with the white lid and it's the non-descriptive Starbucks little thing. And you know there's nothing in that cup. Oh, because they pick it up and it's like there's no inertia. Yeah, they're they're just swinging it around and they try and take a sip out of it, but they're not even gulping. And it, it just really annoys me. And I don't know why. And well, I, and no one ever checks, like, you know, if you order coffee from somewhere, you don't know how hot it's going to be, how cold it is. So the, you always have that precautionary, like, sip just to make sure, like, it's okay. Yeah, I've but never, movies, I've they never always, handled. Like, they my, always go in yeah. two hands, like, I'm going for it. Well, and just, you know, they're they're passing around and, and nothing, right? I've, I've never yeah. grabbed something from Starbucks and just swung the cup around the way they do or... I don't know. It just, it annoys me because it's so obvious that there's no weight in the cup. There's nothing in there. And it, I don't know, it just detracts from the acting or, or the sequence. And I, for some reason, I seem to notice it more in television shows. I think we've been watching um, Titans, 
the DC series and, and everybody grabs coffee and you know there's nothing in those coffee cups. And for whatever reason, I can believe all of the crazy crap going on in there with superheroes. But the minute that the coffee, it just takes me out of it. I like how we have like the most weird things. It's like, no, <laughs> the superhero stuff's fine. And the guy who turns into a, a werewolf is fine. It's the weird stuff on the on the periphery that really bothers us. And I think that's, you know, you want to get all that stuff right. I, I don't know. Or it's, it, it, well, I, honestly, it doesn't matter if they have coffee in the cup or not. Probably not. However, I mean, if I'm an actor and I'm working, bring me all the coffee you can all the time. Just keep it coming. Really? Free coffee? Free coffee? Sure. You'd be going to the bathroom all the time. Eh. Eh. Okay. Whatever. But I, I do like that question because I'm always fascinated. Like Kevin's answer is really unique because wigs and any type of fake board or anything of that nature I, I, it's almost like a Rorschach test, right? Maybe, maybe there's some psychology that we learn from the things that take us out in films. And when he said wigs, what was the first thing you thought of? Uh, samurai cop out yeah, of the gate, man. That wig, <laughs> that <laughs> stupid hat and wig, man. Oh yeah. Uh, and I now I need to go back and watch Aquaman and and see how that goes. Well, Kevin, thank you so much. That was a fantastic question. We, Brad and I, have been texting back and forth since that email came through, just trying to think of things. And believe it or not, that was for me a little bit harder to come up with because it, you know, I'm trying to think what was the one thing that just really takes me out of it. And it wasn't until I watched Titans. I'm like, oh, yeah, that damn coffee cup thing. I've always hated that. So that was awesome. But hey, listen, we're talking about the bombs of 2020. And you and I were, you know, hey, let's talk about something that played theatrically. Let's talk about something that just got released on home media. And I got to thinking, especially with COVID this year, I don't know about you, Brad, but I feel like my movie watching game sort of increased. It, it was always pretty good, but without all of the softball games or baseball games and everything that you would typically do with the kids, I feel like we did hunker down, especially from April to July and watched a ton of movies. Is Was that what happened on your end? Yeah, that and caught up on a lot of TV that I hadn't seen or um, had missed that I just kind of went back Watchmen, you know, and I rewatched Mandalorian for the second season. So it's like, you know, just catching up on a lot of stuff. I was kind of the exact opposite, though. Like, I thought, oh, I'm going to have a lot of movies on my, like, to watch pile from whenever. And I really watched a lot of stuff that was released this year because it was so convenient to, to watch. So, like, everything that I wanted to see now was, was streaming. Tenet was the only thing that I really wanted to see this year that I couldn't because uh, I didn't make it to the theater. And that just came out, you know, last Tuesday. Right. So, you know, I'm able to see that now. But literally anything I wanted to see this year that was 2020, I got to see because it was, okay, do I want to spend 20 bucks to rent this and watch it or whatever? Like, yeah. I mean, convenience of my home, I'm sure that's an easy buy for me. Yeah, for me, I, I guess it was a little bit of the opposite. I I was sort of waiting for the physical release versus I know you did a lot of just digital renting, digital downloading, et cetera. But I, I had this two watch pile that is obviously huge. And I used this opportunity to go through and just say, Hey, I'm going to catch up on a lot of stuff. So what I thought we would talk about real quick, because this week's pick was something that arrow released. Like I said, back in April, I had read a little bit about it and some great reviews because it was on the film festival circuit. And so when it came out, it was a blind buy, 
watched it, never saw the trailer or anything else. And it was one of those fantastic discoveries of a film that I only heard about, never saw. And I thought, hey, we're, we're kind of getting close to the end of the year. We've only got about, what, 11 days left? We're recording on the 20th. So my question for you, Brad, was what were your favorite first-time watches in 2020 that were not released in 2020? So it, it may have gotten a new release this year. It may have been sitting on your shelf for like the last eight years, like some of the ones that were sitting on my shelf. But anything that you watched... What was watched, that movie? Be- the Beast? The Beast. Like 17 years or whatever? Yeah, which we got yeah. that email on. And yeah. I, I that title sounded so familiar. And I'm like, oh yeah, it's sitting over here in this pile. And I bought it years ago. But I, I, I just, I thought hey we did all this movie watching this year with the pandemic did you did you find any movies that either you knocked off your list of shame that everybody says oh this is classic you should have seen this you discovered for this first time this year um or just something that fell under the radar so i i I picked five films that were first time watches for me how many did you come up with i got five oh sweet all right so you want to go first and we'll we'll just trade off yeah yeah so my fifth one um is the 2008 kind of biographical satirical comedy drama directed by Adam McKay um, vice, which is the depiction of Dick Cheney. Oh, okay. um, Starring Christian Bale. I like Adam McKay a lot. I think the big short might be one of my favorite movies of all time. I mean, really? Of course I I work in the financial world. So like, you know, that's, it's right up my alley, but I, I love the big short. I just never got around to see vice. I had heard that it was all right, so I wasn't like rushing to see it. Um, but I really enjoyed it. It's it's great. It's one of those movies that is completely driven by um, the lead actor and the supporting cast. Um, take away Christian Bale, and you kind of got nothing. Um, so you know, it's it's kind of that Joker syndrome where you know Walking Phoenix is so good in that movie that it kind of elevates the movie to something that it's really not. This is kind of the same thing. Um, not as egregious. Like, this is a better movie than The Joker. But, yeah. So, Vice. That's on my to-watch list. Okay. I can't wait. And it's one of those where probably the subject matter wouldn't draw me in. But, like you said, the director and Christian Bale is what got me hooked. And it's it's definitely something I want to watch. So, I guess one of my picks, I didn't order them, you know, first. If, well, there is a number one. I, I, out of the five I'm going to talk about, there is one film that would probably be my favorite of this year. But since I moved out to the Baltimore area, I've been really fascinated with a lot of movies that were made out here and, and even stuff that I didn't take, you know, didn't really recognize took place in the area, something like Silence of the Lambs. As soon as we rewatched it again, I'm like, holy cow, that's, that's right out in this area, which totally makes sense given the story and everything else. <laughs> but one of the films that I went out and searched for just simply because I liked the two stars in it and the director. And this director is known for making films um, that have a Baltimore-centric feel to it, is Barry Levinson. So I've seen Diner and stuff like that before, but I'd never seen 1987's Tin Men. So that's a Barry Levinson film that has Richard Dreyfuss and Danny DeVito. And the whole plot is that there's this car accident that takes place between Richard Dreyfuss and Danny DeVito, and they're both aluminum aluminum siding salesmen. And neither they both have these huge egos. And as a result of this car accident, they spend the entire film trying to wreck each other's lives and get back at each other. So it's a dark comedy. I think it's really fun. But the other thing that I really loved about it was you get to see a historical side of Baltimore 
and and I just I love that aspect of it. I've, I've been going back and watching like Diner and stuff like that just to get a feel of you know the city that I'm now living in. So that and that's something that I think I watched back in January, February, and just and really enjoyed. I I, I would recommend it for anybody who, who just loves Danny DeVito and Richard Dreyfuss too. <laughs> so what's your what's your next one? So my next one is um, something that you recommend. Well, I reached out to you and said, "Hey, had you seen this? Should I watch it?" Um, it is the film called Shadow from 2019 yes I, I will say the first half an hour is a little tough it's a lot of in rooms talking but the payoff anything after that is amazing it visually looks stunning um it's yeah it's it's i don't want to give it too much away because i think it's spectacular but give it past the 30 minute mark and then i, I promise you it'll pay off and if you can watch it in 4k Oh yes, yes, I did watch it in 4K. It's beautiful. It it is stunning. So if you're if you're going to bring that up, I'll talk about one of my picks from the same country. And this one came up when we were doing research for Ip Man 2. So Ip Man 2 came out in 2010, in that month that we were talking all Donnie and and Ip Man films. I assumed that Ip Man 2 because I knew it got nominated for a ton of Hong Kong Film Awards. Sammo Hung, I think, got Best Supporting Actor. Mm-hmm. It Man 2 got Best Action Choreography. So you just kind of assume It Man 2, because it was so popular, just kind of swept the whole thing. But the film that won Best Picture that year for the Hong Kong Film Awards was not It Man 2. It was another film that was nominated also in the Best Action Choreography, and it was 2010 Galleons. This one was a little bit harder to track down. I, I actually had to find uh, a copy off eBay uh, that was like an old library copy on DVD. <laughs> so picked it up. And, and really, the plot of it is it's old guys come out of retirement to teach a young student kung fu and save their home from greedy real estate developers. And it has a very Shaw Brothers 60s, 70s feel to Ooh. it. Okay. But it's really funny. The action sequences are fantastic. I... I I really think action films that give aging stars the spotlight, and I'm not talking about the Schwarzeneggers and stuff like that, but especially these old martial arts performers from the 70s, 80s, et cetera, they're giving them the spotlight, give them a chance to kind of show their stuff along with the younger talent. And that that's all Galliance is. And, and it's a fantastic throwback film. It's so much fun too. The comedy's good, which is... That alone is a highlight for any Chinese cinema because a lot of times the the comedy in those films just don't play well. This one has a lot of heart, and the kung fu scenes are good. The action choreography is fantastic. Obviously, Ip Man 2 is better because it won the award, but Galleons got nominated. But I can definitely see that Galleons is a better film than Ip Man 2. And I'm really surprised that this just didn't get a whole lot of love or, or special edition releases and stuff like that over here. But I also understand that, again, it was sort of made and geared towards that audience. But if, if you haven't seen it, you got to check it out, man. Especially for you, and you and I are in that same wheelhouse. These type of films are, are what we live for. So yeah. it's, it's a cool discovery. And I will say I excluded anything we did for the show because Master Z would have been like in my top oh, yeah. one or two. So I, I skipped that. I, I left that off. Um, we said enough out of that movie. So <laughs> uh, my number three is from 2000, 2014. Um, it is a neo-noir psychological thriller film uh, from Dan Gilroy, I believe, uh, starring Jake Gyllenhaal. It's called Nightcrawler. Um, oh, yes. Man, that's So he such plays a, a guy film. that 
records, you know, all those like violent events, sells it to the local news station. So I think that movie is spectacular. I really have become a huge Jay Gyllenhaal fan. Um, say what you will about him, but I think he is one of the best actors we have right now. Um, Renee Russo's in that too, right? Yes. Oh, yes. She's, she's good um, in that as well. Bill Paxton as well. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I, I, I really like that movie. I don't know. I just kind of never got around to see it. It kind of came and went. I saw it in the um, theaters. Loved it. Yeah, I, I did not. And then, you know, sometimes when you miss it and you don't get it on the way back around, then it's just like, okay, it's going on the pile. And then so this year was just like, watching it and I'm glad I did. It's a spectacular movie. So, well, I think it's funny. So you and I did not discuss any of these picks beforehand. You pick a neo-noir. I pick for one of my films, a classic film noir that I've never seen. And it's 1953's the big heat. So this has Glenn Ford and Lee Marvin. I had heard about it because of this famous coffee scene that caught a lot of flack at the time when it was released, when Lee Marvin throws um, coffee from this coffee pot on this girl that he's seen. And it's, it makes the list of, Hey, a film noir movies, you got to see this one. And really the whole plot is the co- a cop Glenn Ford takes on a politically powerful crime syndicate. And I got to tell you this film in the first, I would say 15, 20 minutes, it plays out like a traditional film noir. There's some things that happen from a plot perspective. I didn't see coming and really change the central character, Glenn Ford, and how he reacts to the scenario and what he ends up doing. And watching him and Lee Marvin go at it back and forth through the film is just fantastic. And in the coffee scene, I can see why it, it just caused a little bit of an uproar at that time period. But if if you love film noir and you love Lee Marvin, you got to check out 1953's The Big Heat. I It was such a blind spot for me. This is one of the films that I watched, and as much as you and I love film noir in general... I can't believe it took me so long to watch this. I, I yeah, was kicking I, I, myself, man. I haven't seen it, so I need to watch it. Yes, you, you exactly. definitely have to. Okay. My number two film is from 2016. Listen to this cast. So we have Michael Shannon, Joel Edgerton, Kirsten Dunst, Adam Driver, Sam Shepard. Dang. Do you have any idea what the movie I'm talking about is? Was that uh, The Rise of Skywalker? No. No. It okay. is Midnight Special. So this is a science fiction film. Yes. Um, where Michael Shannon plays a father who escapes with his son from a government facility after they kind of discover that he has special powers. There's a whole cult thing going on too. Um, when we were kind of first making our list of films, I kept reading about this movie called Midnight Special that was a sci-fi film that was people were saying, it's one of the best sci-fi films no one has ever seen. Um, I'm not going to say whether or not you know, because I think at some point in time we will get it on this show. Um, I agree. It's definitely one it we is, need to we need to yeah. pick up. Yes, yes. So that was my number two. So if it's at my number two, I'm sure people think I I like it, but it is uh, pretty spectacular. So I I think that's the one that I started noticing Adam Driver a little bit more because I had seen it. I think because, like you said, a lot of people were talking about it. So. I went to watch it. Of course, Michael Shane has a fantastic cast. And that was a film that really threw me for a loop because I didn't expect what I ended up seeing. Because even if you watch the trailer, I don't think the trailer, it's a good trailer because it doesn't give it away. Yes. Yes. And, and you definitely are in for a ride on that one. It actually kind of steers you like in the wrong direction. Yeah. It yeah almost a little plays, bit of red herring. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Okay. My number two was one 
that I'm, I'm going through the list and I'm thinking about all the films that I were watching and which one stuck out in my head. This one, I can't say I watched it by accident because it was one that I bought, heard great things about. But again, it just sat on the watch pile for a long time. And I, I don't remember specifically why I put, in, put it in one evening, but I'm thinking, okay, I, I like dark comedies and I heard this was very good. So I put in 2010's Four Lines. Have you heard about this one? Oh yeah, is that's the one with Tom Cruise and no, no. <laughs> what's, no what's the one? Absolutely not. What's the Four Lions movie? No, what's the Lions movie with Tom Cruise and it's like really boring. Is that the? Maybe I'm thinking of something else. Oh, I, I think it's the political film that Tom yes. Cruise did replace a senator or something. I think so. Okay, no, it's not that one. Tom Cruise is don't not screw, in this. Don't screw up COVID around COVID protocols <laughs> yeah, around Tom no Cruise. Kidding. By the way, okay, um, sorry. Th- this one is really about four incompetent British jihadists set out to train for and commit this terrorist act. That That is really the plot of it, and they're complete idiots. Lions for Lambs. Sorry. Lions for Lambs. Okay, yep. Okay. No, no, no. This one is a very dark comedy. And again, the, the whole premise is you have four British jihadists who are going to go and train because of their ideology and everything else and, and commit this act of terror, you know, within a Western country, you on surface and when you see the trailer, you think, okay, it's really just going to make fun of these four guys and, and it's going to maybe pick apart that ideology in that community. In fact, it is a really engaging, emotional movie. It, it is farcical and it's got some fantastic comedic bits to it, but it has a lot to say about ideology across the board. Is it mean spirited at all? Like toward, it can I'm, I'm be. looking at some of the names and I'm like, okay, this could be. It, it can't. Like I said, it it starts out that way, and I think on its surface you can interpret it that way. Okay. But what they do, especially those four characters, you following them, and starting to understand where they're coming for, why why they're doing it, the ideology behind it, and even how they are being, I don't know, seen by Western culture. It it has a lot of subtext to it. It's one of those films that. I was surprised, and I think this is one of the films that I really enjoyed the most because I went in thinking, okay, this might just be a dark comedy, but when all was said and done and you get to the emotional ending of it, at that point, it really has something powerful to say, and you are really vested with these four characters. So I, I it just blew me away, and, I, and you and I both like our films with a little bit more brain behind it. Mm-hmm. So th- this is one that I went in thinking one thing, especially off of the the trailers. And then when all was said and done, I was like, wow, I don't know how I feel about that. I, it was very gray across the board. It wasn't black and white. So I, I like those films, man. I, I like a movie you can walk away from and you're still thinking about it. And even, you know, I saw that back in May and here it is December. And when I saw that on my list, I'm like, oh, my gosh. Yeah, I, I still think about that film every once in a while. What's your number one? Okay, so we used to do a show called The Pretension. Yes. So this is my pretentious pick. Um, outside of Hong Kong films, my favorite foreign language films probably come from Germany. Um, so I was actually going back and kind of looking through some of the best foreign film winners from the Academy Award for the last you know 20 years. 2007's uh, best was a film called The Counterfeiters, which is about a group of guys who try to destabilize the... Um, United Kingdom by flooding it uh, with fake uh, pounds. Um, 
and it is really spectacular. Like I really watched that movie and it was awesome. Is just it a thriller? Awesome. Just trick drama? Uh, what is it's it? It's a drama. Fi- I would say it's a drama. Okay. Um, yeah, it's really good. It's not like, I like World War II films more, you know, just as much as anybody. This one's different. Um, you know, it's not a war film. It's something else, but it just happens to take place during uh, World War II. You know, it's got everything I like. You know, it's a period piece. Um, it's about something that really happened. Um, so, yeah, The Counterfeiters. Um, so, yeah, it won Best Foreign Language Film in 2007 for the Academy Awards. So I'm adding that to that list. It's not on my yeah. radar. That's a great pick. All right, so my okay. number one is not pretentious at all. <laughs> uh, it, it It's one that as soon as I saw the trailer and heard about it, I was immediately interested just on the premise. And Brad, I, I don't know how you feel. To me, f- in terms of action cinema, some of the best stuff is coming out of Korea right now. I know our good friend Alex on Friends with Cinefits had done Parasite, and he was going back and, and watching some Korean cinema and I, and I think he had a limited exposure and wasn't that impressed with it. But I, I got to tell you, most of the stuff I'm watching out of Korea is just gangbusters good. And this one took me by surprise. I knew I was going to like it, but I didn't know I was going to love it as much as I did. And rumor is, I think Kevin Hart picked up the option to remake it over in the United States. And I'm surprised this thing has not gotten a big, I don't know, Shout Factory or Wellgo USA release. I had to get my Blu-ray imported from Korea. But it was a film that came out last year. It was, I think, Korea's biggest blockbuster, and, and rightly so, but it's called Extreme Job. Have you heard about this? I have not. Okay, so the whole premise is they're a group of undercover cops, and they are seen as the outcast, sort of the, the zombie squad, right? Nobody wants them, so collectively they're on their own team. And they are after some drug traffickers within Korea. And in order to get close and set up surveillance, they end up taking over a chicken restaurant across the street and are running it as a business. Well, one of them has this family recipe, so they go ahead and make it. And lo and behold, the restaurant just takes off. It is the most popular thing within the city. And people are even asking him to franchise. So they're trying to bust this cartel and also run this restaurant and keep their cover. And I got to tell you, it is it is a fantastic action film. And you get this finale that you just don't see coming. It has a fantastic payoff. And, and it's very character-driven too. So as much as there's action and comedy throughout the whole thing, you get a group, I think it's about five cops, that by the end of the film, you just, you don't want the movie to end. That, that's, to me, the sign of a really good film, especially when you get that type of characterization or that good of a script, is when you see that, you know, the story's wrapping up, the, the good guys win, it's coming to a close, and you just want to spend more time with these characters. Yeah. And I got to tell you, Extreme Job is one that I've watched several times this year. It's, it's the Korean film I'm recommending to everybody right now. And I would definitely probably pick it as one of my favorite films I've watched this year. Wow. It made 20 times its budget. Budget yeah. was American was $6 million. It made $120 million. Yeah, it's not going to make it on Not a Bomb because critically, it, yeah. everybody loves it. It is a huge financial success. I mean, we could we could pull our Donnie Yen Ip Man card and go. Because no one saw it. Here. Yeah, uh, nobody saw it over here. But I, they will if, if Kevin Hart, in fact, is remaking it. And I can see why Kevin Hart 
if that's true, would be attracted that material. It'd, it'd be perfect for his brand of comedy. Although I really think Extreme Job is smart comedy because of the relationship <laughs> dynamic that happens between the squad. So if if you can find it, I I had to track down, like I said, a, a Korean Blu-ray, Blu-ray to watch it. But I'm sure it's streaming somewhere. Definitely check that out. And it's it's from last year. Cool, man. Good list. That's a fantastic list. And we should post this on the show notes so everybody can check out. I'm, I'm definitely going to watch The Counterfeiters over vacation because just hearing yes. you talk about it, that's, that's the only one I haven't seen off your list. Well, let's let's talk about one that I picked that if we weren't talking about this film, this would be on my list of 2020 discoveries. It is 2018's Why Don't You Just Die? So typically with these type of reviews or discussion, we tend to spend a lot of time dissecting the box office or what was you know released around that time period or even the reviews and then even go into a lot of cast and crew stuff i think this one's going to be super interesting so when we talk about the financials and a little bit of a backstory on this brad what did you find out about why don't you just die yeah so you were kind of hinting at this earlier um in 2018 this kind of gets released on the film festival circuit over in Europe, um, Blackwater film festival and um, window to Europe film festival um, kind of gets a lot of accolades there. And then is gets a Russian release in April of 19. Um, so the budget for this film, and I had to kind of go on some exchanges and see how much um, 50 million ruples was worth. Um, that is roughly $3.6 million, which is the, the budget for this movie, which seems extravagant uh, for, yes. for this movie. Yeah, I checked. I, if you said I checked 3 my work. I was. Like, I, I checked okay. my work twice. All right. Okay. Because um, at first I was like, "Well, is it five? Is it five million ruples? That makes more sense." But no. So it grosses in Russia about forty-one thousand dollars. Wow. So, Financially uh, a dud. Yes. Yes. Um, kind of like you said. Gets a uh, Arrow release. Uh, they're the distri- distributor f- uh, of this film. Gets a 420 2020 release. So this movie comes out on 420, which, you know what, kind of makes sense. Rotten Tomatoes at 70%. Um, and that's with 70 critics reviewing. So um, pretty much, was that, one or two people saying they don't like it? Um, it fared so- well for those who did see it. Yes, yes. Um, a lot of the reviews um, compare it to uh, Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction, um, things like that. I kind of got more Guy Ritchie out of this movie than, say, Quentin Tarantino, but that was just me. Yeah, so did not uh, did not make a whole lot of money. Uh, $41,000 is, is not a lot of money. And, and I don't uh, know how it's doing on a home media release. I can tell you this. I searched for it and stuff, and it seems like people have seen it, but I went on iTunes um, because the first time I watched it, I watched the one that you gave me, and I was really like reading the subtitles and really trying to get into it. The second time through, I was watching it while I was running, so I just had it on, and that way I was just kind of watching the action this time and not having to like read the subtitles. Um, it was two ninety nine to purchase on iTunes. Which is crazy. Yeah. So. But I... I... I don't know how to say this. A lot of people that I talk to who are even better movie nerds than me, when I talk about this film, they don't know what I'm talking about. Well, I I had zero idea. Like this is one of the rare 
films for me were A, I had zero idea what the movie was about, had zero idea about anyone behind the production. So, you know, it's very rare that you watch a movie and you have zero preconceived notions. Because even with like, you know, if I don't watch a movie for something, but I know somebody that I know directed it, you know, at least I know, okay, it's going to probably look like this and it's going to flow like this, something like that. This one is like completely out of left field and I have zero idea what's what's coming my way. So um, even like the the box art really doesn't, you know, give you too much. Um, you you, you kind of get something from the title that, you know, something's going on, but, you know. That's a good point. The box art is so subtle. It, it looks like a family portrait standing in this hideous green wallpaper yes. with red. It almost looks Christmassy. So if, you, <laughs> if you're saying that the Christmas colors traditional are red and green, the box car, the box art just sells that. But I, but I got to say, from a release standpoint, Arrow, Arrow rivals Criterion, in my opinion, in terms of what they put out in, with special features and everything else. And you talk about a film that nobody's heard of. There are so many special features on here. It's ridiculous. Not just making of, but you also get, um, and here we go. We're talking Russian filmmaker, Russian cast. I'm going to slaughter every one of these names. But Kirill, Kirill Sokolov is the director, writer, and editor of the film. But you get four short films from him on this release. You get the theatrical trailer. You get the complete original storyboard for the film on BD-ROM content. You also get, we talked about the exclusive behind the scenes footage. You get an interview with an author and critic, Kim Newman, exploring the, the longstanding tradition of single location cinema. So we'll talk about that in a little bit more detail. But the amount of content that is on just this release really I think is flabbergasting considering it's just a film nobody's heard of I yeah. think unless unless you are just plugged into the film circuit do you have much history with Russian cinema at all not really what what I've noticed I mean I've seen things like Solaris yeah and like Battleship Potem- Potemkin, Potemkin. Yeah. Have see, you I've seen, seen the stuff that you're supposed to see from Russian have you seen Ballad of Soldier Ballad of a Soldier no okay but but I've noticed with Russian cinema, I, they did some superhero film called The Guardians that yes, I don't think yes. looked very good. But I'm seeing a film industry now that is starting to spark a lot of creative content that looks like it's chasing your, your traditional Hollywood content. But after watching this, I'm, I'm thinking I need to just see more Russian cinema outside of your typical yeah, Solaris yeah. stuff. But behind the scenes, I just talked about um, the editor, director, and writer, Kirill, Kirill Sokolov. So he was born in 89. Man, does that make you feel old? Oh. This guy's born in 1989 in St. Petersburg, Russia. He's six years younger than I am, and he's direct, you know. Yeah, he's directing a $3 a podcast. million. <laughs> <laughs> so here's the other crazy thing. In 2012, he received a master's degree in physics and technology of nanostructures. This guy... Now he's just showing off. <laughs> yeah, is a brain. In 2013, so after he gets all those degrees and can solve science, in 2013... <laughs> he figured it out. He, he figured out science. Yes, science. he's like, science, now it bores me. So in 2013, he says, uh, I, I've been making these films as a hobby, 
And so I'm going to start doing my hobby full time. And he enrolls in a program for advanced courses for film directors and script writers. And he concentrates on that. Does a ton of professional short films. This movie is his feature debut film. So leading up to this film, he's done a lot of shorts. And then this is his first big major film. Gets an international release and and gets a lot of love on the film circuit that we just talked about. The other person behind the scenes which I want to mention because we're going to talk about this person, is the, st- the stunt coordinator, Fedor Star- Starka. Don't, he's, he's a stunt person. He has worked on American films like Hardcore Henry and some stuff like that, but I bring him up because I think he's pretty crucial to this film in, in terms of some of the things that happen. And then in front of the camera, you get a lot of Russian film and stage actors, of which I've not seen any of their work. Yes. So, kicking things off, you've got the boyfriend, Matvey, played by Alexander Kuznetsov. Oh, good job. Thank you. The father, Andrew, is played by Vitality Kiev. Olya, the daughter, is Evgenia Krugsde. I, I feel like it should Kill- be taking shots of vodka or something. Yeah, you got it. Yeah. All right, here we go. Tasha, the mother, is played by Elena Shevenko. And the other character that we're going to talk about is the father's partner because he's a police detective. Are you a Russian asset, Troy? I don't know. I, I feel like I could be. Yeah. I'm doing, I'm doing like better Black than Widow, most names. Like, yeah. American names I can butcher. Russian names yeah. apparently I can do. Michael Gore plays Yevenik, which is the, the father's partner. So for the purposes of me not insulting any of these great performers, we will probably refer to them as the boyfriend, father, daughter, mother, and partner. Yes. That that was what I was going to ask you if we could give these people nicknames because although I love I saying embarrass- these names, I don't want to embarrass myself for the next hour. I know, so. but Russian names are so cool compared to Troy and Brad. Those names are well. Lame. We to be fair, we have the widest names possible. That's true, but these names are cool. Yeah, but I've I've never seen. I looked at the filmography. There was nothing there that I had seen, and even when I was looking at the stunt coordinator Fedor. Oh, I saw Hardcore Henry. I saw some of the American action films that he had done. Can I ask for my refund back for Hardcore Henry? You know, my son loves that film. I, I, I think of, it's of okay. Of course he would. Yeah. It's, uh, it, it's very kinetic. Uh, yeah, it, I, I almost get carsick watching that movie. It is. There's, there's a couple sequences I like. Well, anyways, we derail. Okay. So let's, t- let's talk about why don't you just die. I have no trivia on this. The, the only thing I can think of from a production standpoint, and it was watching some of the things behind the scenes and hearing about the making of the film, the interior of the apartment. So this is a single setting location for the most, for the most part. Yeah, ninety-eight percent inter- of it takes yes. place in an apartment. Interior of the apartment has this crazy wallpaper, and I guess as the story goes, they really couldn't afford to wallpaper it, so they xeroxed. Yes, paper. And <laughs> just put it up there, so the wallpaper is just xerox paper. So I thought that's yeah. pretty cool. So Brad, this was—I don't know how many times I've watched this this year. It, it is my little gem that I discovered and have been telling everybody about. And I was excited when we decided in December to kind of talk about, you know, the bombs of 2020. What are your thoughts on this thing? I, so I don't know where to start. Um, this is an absurdist film turned up to 11. And, huh. Well, I, you know, I'm glad you start because the movie starts with a quote. And the quote is, he did not live to know who the winner was. And that quote is from Flan O'Brien. Who is Flan O'Brien? I, I, had, no I had to use the internet. Apparently, okay. he is a Irish satirist. 
had written a couple of novels. Okay. And I that think makes... I think that makes total sense once you understand where the quote comes from and who that author is. It lays out exactly what you're getting in this film. Yeah, so it's so this film was structured kind of like um, like it's definitely three act structure, but it's got like a modern time and then like what has happened in the past to lead up to this event that is going on now. Um, and of course, you know, over the course of the film, you learn more and more about what's going on and why these people are in this room. And then the conclusion, you know, it starts off and then it just goes. Uh, I will say, I think the scene where the boyfriend and the dad sit at the table together reminds me of a lot of Inglorious Bastards at the very beginning, where it's just this tense scene where you're like, what is going to happen? Uh, because he walks in with a hammer. Um, of course, it falls out and you're just like, like at that moment in time, like my heart is racing. I'm like, this is super tense. Um, and then it just kind of. It, well, can we can we talk about that sequence? Yeah. So, yeah. Even before you get to the title card, as you said, the majority of the film is in a single location in an apartment. The structure is important. And I, I told you one of the things you might want to watch on top of this is Reservoir Dogs. Because Which I gladly did. <laughs> yes. All over the box art, they even talk about shades of early Tarantino, Edgar Wright, Sam Raimi. And I totally get that. But if you look at the plot structure itself, I think it does follow close to Reservoir Dogs in that your main story is, is in the present. Your character's motivations and learning all about your characters occur through flashbacks at key intervals of the main story. Yep. Just like Reservoir Dogs. So it's, it's ver- trying to copy that. But even before the title card, I find this super interesting. So the, the scene you're talking about is what, in the first five minutes? Yes. Yeah. So right before the title card where you get the name of the film, boyfriend shows up to the apartment of his girlfriend's parents and he's got a hammer. And he's never met the parents before. (laughs) Father lets him in to meet the new boyfriend. He's having breakfast. So they sit at a table. He walks over to the table, sits down, boom, hammer falls out of his pants. And now the father's like, why are you bringing a hammer in here? So the the kid picks up the hammer and puts it down on the table sitting in front of him. Father's a cop. Father tells him he's a cop. And he starts asking these questions. Like you said, there's such an incredible tense exchange at the table to the so point. Let me ask you this. Yeah. Does he know? I don't think he knows that the father is a cop. No, right? He, I don't. He doesn't. Okay. No. So I think that plays it like, so all of a sudden he realizes he is kind of outmatched, but now he is stuck in this apartment. He's, he is not yes. leaving. As okay. soon as the father tells him he's a detective and he starts asking questions like, who's the hammer for? Your friend is 25, 27 years old. Doesn't have a hammer. Nope, my friend's a computer guy. Oh, everybody. So there's this fantastic exchange. It's super tense, like you said. And then, it, and then they amp it up to an 11 when the father just says, hey, do you enjoy screwing my daughter? <laughs> and you're like, oh, my God, what is going on? So, so the, the father knows something's up. And it's really weird. And you can read everything on the boyfriend's face. He's got to get out of there. He, he apparently made a mistake. He didn't understand the full situation. But you don't even know why he's there to begin with. You know nothing of what's going on except a kid shows up at the door with a hammer. Then as soon as that exchange happens, this action sequence unfolds and you get a TV, a shotgun, 
furniture flying everywhere, hammers going nuts, people biting each other. He gets stuck in the wall from being thrown in the wall. Yes. And it ends on this beautiful slow motion sequence of a television slowly coming towards the boyfriend's face and smashing like into old, the face. A, like a, a CRT. Not yeah, like those a heavy. Like yeah. it, it's 32 inches, but probably weighs 500 pounds. Yes. And he's throwing it right at him. The slow motion sequence, it just knocks him out. And all of a sudden you get the title of the film, Why Don't You Just Die? That's in the first, I don't know, what is it, 15 minutes maybe? Yeah, 15 minutes, yep. Incredible intro. And you have no idea why people are doing what they're doing outside of the fact that this guy shows up with a hammer. He's clearly in an environment he didn't plan for. And then the rest of the film, as it takes place, you get flashbacks to to start learning everybody's motivation. And you get the character's backstory through the flashbacks and you start to put two and two together of what's going on. Yeah. And uh, folks, we're trying not to spoil this because this is, this is a very delicate film. I'll say this, even if it gets spoiled for you from reading about it, because even if you go and read critics reviews, they give you probably the first 25% of the film just in the review. And that's fine. But half of the fun of this movie is just watching it all unfold. Yes. Yes. I would agree. I will say, Troy, I think the first 15 minutes of this movie is the best. Um, I don't think it gets any better than that first 15 minutes just because of how the tense and the buildup and then kind of that first fight scene is it's kind of so absurd and it goes on and literally he's like sticking through the wall and then there's a TV. And, and when the TV hits him, you get this moment of like, okay, he's dead. Like, you don't live through that. And then you're like, so what happens now? And then, of course, the next scene happens. And then you're just like, okay, wait, wait, wait. What's going on? And then you're like, okay, this movie's called Why Don't You Just D- Die? So, like, am I seeing, like, a guy who was some sort of unbreakable, like, superhero sort of thing? <laughs> like, you know, you're just trying to, like, put the pieces together. Because, like, you know, I don't know anything about it. I only know the title. And then I know this guy just took a CRT to the face and he's still alive. Um, and then it just kind of ratchets up from there. But... You know, with, with me just trying to figure it out as I go, because it's only natural. Like, when you're watching a movie and you know nothing about it and something happens, you're like, okay, it's going to play out like this, this, and this. And then until it shows you you're wrong, and then that's kind of your thought process. Yeah, see, um, I'm, I'm going to totally disagree with you. Well, let me backtrack that comment. I might have agreed with you maybe the first time I watched it and said, wow, that first 15 minutes, it's so stylized. It's so tense. And the rest of the film doesn't play out the way that the first 15 minutes does. After watching it multiple times, I think I'm starting to understand what this director is doing. And I think that's all intentional. So I want to talk about the violence first in the film. What we just described, really, if you were to watch the first 15 minutes, you would go, wow, this is kind of like a violent Jackie Chan film. Because the violence is a little bit cartoony. It's it's actually very funny when he when he initially picks up that TV and is trying to throw it at the guy. It's plugged in, so he goes yeah, backwards he falls with over. it. Yeah, so like I said, like it's absurdist. Like this it's is absurdist comedy. Like at the first you know bit of this movie, and then it turns into like dark comedy after that. Yeah, well, the, yeah, the violence has I, I don't know what you'd say varying degrees. So, in full disclosure, I don't think this movie's for everybody. So, <laughs> I. 
as much as I really enjoy this and as much as I would recommend this to people that love Reservoir Dogs or anything Tarantino or Edgar Wright, if you like that R-rated dark comedy, I'm putting this one to the top of your list. But if somebody says, you know, I'm looking for that rom-com and something, no, I'm, I'm, I'm not recommending this one. But the, the violence, you talk about it, it goes from cartoony to horrific back to slapstick and even becomes poetic at moments. And it's going in and out of all those different styles of violence at different parts of the film. And it starts with a very cartoon-like, absurdist, violent duel. But the rest of the duels and everything else that happens, you don't know what you're going to get. It's, it's almost like spinning a roulette wheel and just watching where it's going to land, right? And the director, Sokolov, gives you every variation of style. And I think he's playing the audience a little bit to say, I'm going to point out the absurdity of what's going on with this character or their motivation, or I'm going to shock you. And so therefore, he's very good about applying what style of violence for that scenario. That's why I think he's a really good director. And he's orchestrating all of the emotions from the audience from each act of violence. I mean, just to juxtapose, I think is the word I'm looking for. Juxtaposition? Juxtaposition, yeah. So we talked about that first sequence. Later on during the film, you get this other sequence where it looks like something right out of the film Seven with Brad Pitt and Morgan Freeman when they go to the crime scene. It is ridiculously gory, but instead of hiding all of that in the shadows and everything, it's all lit. He made me wear it. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's it's crazy, but I I don't know. I, I actually think it gets better upon rewatch because when you if you walk into the film and you see that first 15 minutes and you go wow the rest of the film is going to be like that it's not you'll get some of it here and there but he is very much playing the audience for for very specific emotions at very specific times and i i love that i love the fact that you don't know what you're going to get but it it makes sense in the context of the moment for the story Yeah, that's a nice way of saying, Brad, you're wrong about the first 15 minutes of this movie, but yeah. It's no, a long-winded I, way of saying you're yes, wrong. But yes, yes. Um, you know, I, and not to say that I did not enjoy this movie after the first 15 minutes, I just, the tension is never higher at that moment, but there are other parts of, you know, when he wakes up in the bathtub and he is, you know, trying to escape, all of a sudden you're like, okay, How's what's going do? on now? Yeah, Um I mean, and then it turns into a scene from Hostel, which is like, you know, completely like tortury sort of way. And you're like, oh, my gosh. Um, which, <laughs> Troy, what was the, the most dramatic part of this movie for you? Are, so can I tell you the thing that made me cringe the most? Like of I, all the violence that happened, there is one Was it thing. when he was eating spaghetti? No. Okay. It, that it was, was for me. When he was putting all that spaghetti in his mouth, he was slurping it. That was the most uncomfortable part of this movie for me. I was like, oh, my God, I can't. Like, that literally made my stomach Are turn. you serious? Okay, yes. we're talking about so the I scene might be where a little, he's, he's at I might dinner be a, talking to his, with his daughter, daughter. Yep. And he's just shoveling spaghetti in. That was the part where I was like, I can't do this. This is disgusting. Okay, so my... I might the, be a little bit of a psychopath, but... <laughs> I, I didn't expect that one. I thought you might pick the scene that I was going to pick that made me so uncomfortable... And it's when he is trying to get out of handcuffs, which sidebar, one of the things I loved about this film, and it feels very, I don't know, Tarantino, Edgar Wright, sort of where you get a pause and it explains to the audience how handcuffs work. 
So in all the films, everybody's looking for, what is it, a hairpin, bobby pin, something of that yeah. nature. Yep. And you put it in the lock, and by just fiddling it around a little bit, all of a sudden you get out of handcuffs. So it goes through the sequence, and you see a clear set of handcuffs, and it shows you what's going on and says, yeah, that used to work because you would fiddle around with it. All of a sudden the latch comes undone, and boom, you're free, right? You're free, yep. Yeah, so it plays through the sequence, and you're like, oh, he just got out of there. He's escaping. It goes, well, hold on a second. Now you have a new set of handcuffs that understand that issue, and so there's a double lock, and they show that one, and lo and behold, this guy is in the new set of handcuffs. I believe it's the imported kind, right? The imported kind. Yes. So the sequence that totally just I had to turn away and was hard to look at was when he's he's trying to get that hairpin, and it goes to the drain, and he's trying to stick his tongue down into the drain to pull the hairpin out, and there's all the water the dirty water, the hair and everything else. And as he's, he's pulling that out, he's got hair coming. That was absolutely disgusting. And in full disclosure, I think the reason why it was so disgusting is because I'm married and you have you, two women in your house, I have two women in my house and they leave hair everywhere. And when I'm in the shower, I feel like I'm putting together a baby Wookiee or something from all the hair. So when I see that sequence, I'm like, Oh, oh yeah, no, no, uh, uh-uh. uh, so none of the violence got to us. It was the hair, the, you know, sticking your mouth on the drain and some guy eating spaghetti. The spaghetti one, I think, makes you weird. Yeah. I'm just calling yeah. that. It's fine. <laughs> but it, it's it's interesting, that whole sequence, because you get, like you said, hostile. and comes out with a drill and he does some damage. And what's crazy is the film starts out in this apartment and everything's green. He's wearing green. The mom is wearing green. There's green wallpaper. And there's so much that happens within the single setting that now everything's red. I mean, you can't even tell that he was wearing a green shirt by the end. It's not from ketchup either. It's from not from well or spaghetti sauce. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Um, What What did you think about the flashback structure? So I I I find with flashbacks in films, they're they're very convenient to advance the plot, and it takes a really good director to not only create a flashback that gives you just enough information and doesn't spell it out, but also the timing of the flashback is super important, right? Cause you, you want the movie to unfold and you don't want somebody to interrupt with something and go, well, I, I couldn't show you this in the main narrative. So I came up with a flashback so yeah. that I could tie some loose ends. None of, none of the flashbacks in this movie feel like a cop out, which, you know, is like, Oh crap. How do we explain this moment or this moment? It all feels really natural, um, and it all makes kind of sense, especially as the film goes on. The partner kind of plays a little bit bigger of a role, and you get that whole backstory, and it makes sense. Their motivations make sense. So, again, I don't think they're using the flashbacks as a crutch. Um, I actually like the way they pull them off um, because you're always waiting for that other nugget of information. You're just, like, wanting, okay, now what's this? What's this? What's this? Um it really, it helps, um, especially like there's even ones that kind of don't make a whole lot. Like, I, I guess it does. But like when the daughter goes to work, um, you know, and she speaks to the manager, like, yes, yeah, she lost her job. Um, so, you know, something plays along with that. But, you know, that one like goes on a little bit and it's like you think it's, oh, this is irrelevant. Why are they showing me this? And then it kind of you learn later on that that's her motivation because she lost her job. Um, she was supposed to earn it back, but she <laughs> declined. But uh, yeah, so sorry. I'm I'm trying to be 
somewhat vague because I don't want to give away a whole lot of the plot um, of this movie because I think that's the best part of it is like not knowing anything. So, well, again. I, the thing about the flashback that I like so much is it, it serves two purposes within this narrative. The first is there. I think there's three flashbacks. You've got the first one that really sets out the boyfriend's motivation. So it answers why he showed up why he's in there, yep. with a hammer, right? Yep. The second one lays out uh, the father's relationship with his partner. With partner. And then the third one is the motivation of the daughter and then a little bit of her backstory. Yeah. What I loved about each of those sequences is it gives you information that you were missing for the events that led up to that. So you go, oh, totally makes sense. I, I get it why he showed up with a hammer now. The other thing that it does, and here's where I think we've got a masterclass director. I'm going to use that term masterclass. <laughs> I think he's really good because he wrote, edited, and directed this thing. If you can't tell, I'm in love with this film. But <laughs> what I love about Sokolov and what he does with those flashbacks is he fills in the missing pieces from the narrative or the plot, but the events that occur after the flashback make much more sense from the motivation of the character because you see what's driving them and you see these things that make up who they are. So when key decisions happen going forward, it's not a shock, it's not a surprise, and you go, that makes total sense given this little bit of information about this character that you showed me that their actions and everything that they do and even how they react to some of the consequences, it totally makes sense. And again, that's where I think the flashbacks in this film are just fantastic because it doesn't just serve for driving the story and filling in the gaps and the mystery, but now everything that happens with that character it, it's all coming together and it makes sense. Yeah. So like even when the partner comes to the apartment, like, you know, that something is going to happen because of the lead up to that moment. And then that ratchets up the tension again. Yes. Um, so yeah, like you're saying, like it just a kind of laying out these motivations of these characters. Cause we're really only working with what five characters. Yeah. Five with, you know, some including side characters. the partner. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, you get a lot of time with kind of their backstory and their motivations to kind of get them in this location and why are they there and what they want out of it. So, you know, I think if this movie's grander, it doesn't work. It's got to be this small sort of yes. micro movie. This where you're intimate only location. Yes, where you're only, you're only on this location and you're only got a handful of characters that are easy to understand. So, yeah, it, it just, you know, you kind of got to know what you have and, and what to do with those pieces and then not make it so big. I think one of the great things about this movie is the director knew his scope and he stayed within the scope that he had. And it didn't go outside of that because I think, again, if this movie's any bigger, it doesn't work. It starts to fall apart. You have too many people. Um, you don't know why people are there. Um, so, yeah, th I think... That's the best thing I can say about this movie is it knows what it is. Well, yeah, and it executes everything that it wants to do, I think, very well. And again, what makes the flashback so unique, a great example is the one you talked about, her interaction with the job. It, it lays out the foundation of what got her into the place to make a choice. But as she's making more choices down the road later in the film, 
you go, oh, that shouldn't be a surprise based on how she acted in the flashback. Yeah. So I, I'm really, I don't know. I, I just, I find it so refreshing to see somebody take a script and go, I'm going to mess with the narrative and I'm going to take something, aka the flashback, which most screenwriters or directors would use as sort of a lazy way to get the information in there to advance the plot and say, yeah, I'm going to give you some information and it's going to fill in the gaps, but it's also going to provide the basis for the actions that occur later down the film. And another great example of it is you talked about really the father and the partner. You get to see a, an interesting development and watch their relationship in play. But how that happens in his react, the father's reaction to things, the daughter ends up commenting on it later and says you treat your partner this way and you treat mom this way and when she makes that revelation you you wouldn't have any of that deep character development without those flashbacks and you also what happens next wouldn't make sense without that comment and without that flashback if you go back and look at it from a screenplay perspective all of the pieces not only fit together but the timing of when they reveal it to the audience is so good. Like I said, it it's master class. I think it's good. It's real good. Yeah. So I, I had a question for you. Is is the mother character? What is going on with her? She seems to be aloof most of the time and not really grasping at the the levity of of things that are happening within five feet of her. I think when you go back and watch it again. Yeah. And so here's the thing, and we can talk about performances. I think the first time I saw this, uh, is it Vitality? So Andrew, the father, he, he's a powerhouse. You can't take Power, it. Yes. You cannot yes. take your eyes off this guy. The two leads are screen. spectacular in this movie. Oh my God. He's so good. I mean, right out of the gate when he answers the door and that Rottweiler is going through and everybody's telling the dog to shut up and he goes shut up and it it just instantly shuts up that tells you you know the father's the the alpha male right and he is always eating and consuming I mean, he's walking around that salami i think he smacks his wife with it on the yeah, head that, at one point that meat stick man it's yeah but he he exemplifies greed and consumption and he owns every scene he's in and then the boyfriend he's so strong in the beginning of the film and then becomes this passive observer towards the back end. But the way he transitions to that and his reactions to things and subtlety, again, is brilliant. And I would I would point out there is a scene, and this is the boyfriend's reaction when the daughter and father come to the conclusion that they have to do something. And so he's looking at her and she's looking at and watching this exchange and watching the boyfriend's response as everything is sort of playing out, I think is fantastic. Yep. So in the initial viewing, those two, you can't take your eyes off of them. They, they command everything. Multiple viewings, you start to look at the daughter and the partner, and especially the mother. It starts to make sense a little bit more where you say she's more aloof. She's in this very abused relationship. And she oh, doesn't, yeah, yeah, obviously. Yeah, like she doesn't she know is, what to do. Yes. And what happens to her throughout the film, when you go back and watch it again you start to see the signs of that right out of the gate. Okay. And so it, it totally makes sense. But again, this is one of those films that 
I do think it, it requires multiple viewings. You'll watch it the first time and go, wow, that was fantastic in terms of how it unfolded and you go through the plot and the discovery of it. You go back and watch it a second time, it still didn't lose anything for me because I was enjoying watching everything else that was unfolding around it and then taking it all in in terms of how they did it. But I, I think the mom is a weaker component to it. But again, what she does and what happens to her ends up being the catalyst for the daughter, the father. I mean, so many other things. And if you go back and, and really dissect it from a second viewing, again, I think it all makes sense. I'm not okay. saying this movie doesn't have its flaws, but they're very minimal. And like you said, it knows exactly what it is. It, it's, it's kinetic. It moves at a fast pace. And it's intimate. It's it's take, all takes place in this apartment. Yeah, and, and my another another question I had for you is who who in this film am I supposed to root for? Like who is the the person I want? It to depends. Win? It it depends on yeah. okay who's getting stabbed, knocked around, shot at. It depends on the flashback because this is one of those films where because it is shifting. Yes. Because you think some things and then you it reveals and then you're like, oh, wait a minute. There's even subtlety with the father where there's a there's a sequence where he's sitting in the bathroom crying. And the reason why he's crying and his reaction to things as evil as he is and as much of a force of nature he is, he does get these moments to kind of reveal a bit of a fra- – I, I hate using the word fragile, but you see the the kinks in his armor a little bit. Yeah. And where his loyalty lies in certain relationships. But to your point, and I think that's where the violence comes in too. The violence, again, depending on how it's used, if, if it's used from that horrific or poetic standpoint, it, it might elicit sympathy. You might be on somebody's side, but then give it 10 or 15 minutes and it'll flip on you. And all of a sudden, you might be rooting for somebody else. So <clears throat> when I watched this movie... I started thinking about something that I thought maybe this movie was about, and I could be completely wrong, but this just happened to cross my mind. And I want to, I want to give you my thesis and, and let you oh, see. Oh, I can't what wait. Think. Okay, good. Yes. Okay. I, I like this. So in 2017, a uh, movement started called the Me Too movement, which mm-hmm. was kind of empowering to women. And at that point in time, people were saying, "Believe women." Absolutely. Which I'm not saying anything against. I'm just saying, you know, that's what happened. We were like, women were coming out and saying, this happened to me. Believe me. Okay. Um, One of the motivations for a character in this movie is someone says that someone raped them um, when they were little. And it's sort of like, you're going to, I'm going to tell you this as a female and you're going to believe me. And it turns out that that may or may not be true. And I was trying to think, like, is this kind of coming out against the Me Too movement and, and saying, like, you know, we, we just believe women absolutely. And to be chivalrous, we're just going to believe them and protect them and go to their Harvey Weinstein-esque figure <laughs> and try to kill them. And I was just like, huh. Like, I don't know necessarily if that is, like, the main motivation of this movie. But it, to me, it feels like timing-wise... It's hard to not see a male character motivated by a female who tells them that something horrific happened to them when they were growing up and that not kind of speak to this growing Me Too movement of, you know, 2017 to now. 
That's interesting. I, I never, I honestly never thought of it that way. So I, in reading about the film and reading interviews from the director, I believe he just came up with the idea in terms of he was hearing these stories and they were true. And he came up with the premise of, well, what would happen if somebody heard this story and then without doing any research or anything else, just decided to act on it? Because that's one of the things that propels one of the plot points. So I don't think the director was looking at it and saying, oh, I want to throw some shade or criticism to the Me Too movement. But I can honestly see somebody looking at this and saying, for anybody who came out to use that type of experience as a way to manipulate somebody else, the timing of it, it it makes it a bit more, well, how do I say this? The one character, this is so hard to talk about. It was, okay, so listen, I don't, we're probably about an hour, 10 minutes into this. If you have not seen this film and you're interested in seeing it, stop listening right now. Listen to next week when we do the next movie. Maybe come back and save this portion of it when we uh, kind of open up the gates here and, and really get into it. So full disclosure. Should, should I say what we're going to watch next week just in case? <laughs> <laughs> no, not yet. So, no, okay. Uh, they'll figure it out, right? So yeah, full yeah. disclosure from here on out, if we don't have you vested into this film, you're prob- this is probably not your cup of tea. Uh, if you don't care about seeing this film, then continue listening. So the, the main thing that sets off the story is that the girlfriend tells her boyfriend, hey, my father uh, raped me when I was 12 and has been raping me for the last 15 years. And by the way, can you go kill him? Yep. So that's what you find out in the first flashback. So in the first part of the film, and again, that's not what this movie's about. But it's it is weirdly really cold in that scene too. It's it is. weird how I never understood. It, it To me, it ring, this movie rings as a boyfriend trying to earn the love of a girlfriend. Yes. Okay. <clears throat> I, I I think that's where it comes from. Yes. And she and she's using that. And yes. And here's why I, here's where I don't think this movie is about that. If you didn't get that third flashback sequence, then I would say, oh yeah, Brad, you might have something there. There could be some commentary about the Me Too movement. And you could have a director who's saying, hey, let's not believe everything because if you do, look at the consequences, right? Mm -hmm. I think when you get to that third flashback sequence and you understand who she is and you understand the choices that she's making, it totally makes sense that she is taking this guy who, I mean, he starts at the movie even before he rings the doorbell and he's saying, evil's not going to get me. Evil's not going to get me. I mean, he's... He's really got this. He's wearing a Batman shirt, for goodness sakes. You can, yeah, he's trying to be a superhero. He's trying, like to, he's be trying to be a superhero. Yeah, yeah. He, he believes in justice. He really believes a story. He wants to go out and do right because he can't believe that a father has been raping his daughter for like the last 15 years. And so he wants to go out and provide justice, just like the Batman on his shirt. So when you asked earlier, is there somebody you should kind of root for? You think it's him. But mm-hmm. even then, he's he's not your hero, hero, right? But um, I mean, is Batman a hero? Yeah, true. Okay. <laughs> but I, I think with that third flashback and sort of the third. What's act the third of it, flashback again? The third flashback is, is her. her. 
Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So how she reacts to things, where she's at, what she does. And then even when she's sitting, you mean, on the, the, you mean the hand job flashback? Yes. Okay. When, when you're, when you're sitting on the couch um, with her and her boyfriend and the father is sitting across from them with a shotgun and then goes, Hey, I'm going to give you this money. And oh, by the way, we got to kill this guy. She's like, Oh yeah, I totally understand that. Hey, I'm gonna go check on mom real quick. You're like, Oh yeah. She was, she knew exactly who this guy was knew really, I don't know, oblivious <laughs> he was to like reality or maybe pure optimism or whatever it is living in a comic book world. And she used that for her own benefit. Again, though, I think you can, if someone really wanted to, they could say, okay, maybe there were women attaching themselves to the me too movement just to get some sort of sympathy or some sort of reaction out of people or some sort of fame or infamy. Um, well, the, yes, I, again, I am not saying be. anything. No, no, I'm no, not saying it. I'm not saying anything against like the Me Too movie at all. <laughs> I am just like, when I saw this movie, I was like weirdly kind of pointed in that direction because this guy is so kind of bothered by the fact that this woman was raped and she told, tells him that. And it come, you know, it's written right around this time where this is the biggest thing that's happening to powerful men, like women coming out in droves against men and like, Society is saying, hey, we've got to believe these women, which I totally agree with. And then here's this manipulative person playing into that and using this guy to her advantage. So could, it could be and it may resonate yeah. because of the timing of the Me Too movement. That was really the films. only thing is like, OK, you know, yeah, Me Too started in 17. You know, it's just getting bigger and bigger in 18 and 19. Like when this movie's like being in he's writing it probably and production wise and all that stuff. So. Hey, well, I mean, that that's the danger of something like this, right? So you can get inspired by an idea that just says, hey, I saw in the news, Asia Argento, Dario Argento's daughter is, is sort of an interesting celebrity in that at the time that that was happening, wasn't she out there really championing the Me Too movement and then got busted because she was harassing a younger gentleman on one of her movie sets. So all yes. of the things that she was saying, hey, men are using their power and look what they did to me. She was doing the same thing to some kid. Yeah, because of her daddy. Yeah, so what's what's crazy about it is somebody could take that headline in that article and go, I'm going to use this as a catalyst to kick this plot or this story off. And people can look at that and go, wow, you're really trashing a very important movement. When in fact, he's saying, hey, it's an element of a story that says somebody is reading the newspaper too and says, you know, everybody is believing everybody right now. I could lie and go ahead and kick this off and send my boyfriend to kill my father if I tell this story. Yeah, I mean, because I think obviously corruption plays a huge part in this movie. Like anyone could be corrupted. Everybody's, corrupt, you, everybody is corruptible corrupted. and corrupting yes. each other. Yes, yes, exactly. So, I mean, I think that's easy to see. Um, but again, I... For some reason, that just resonated with me when I, when I finished this movie. And I was like, wait a minute. And again, I can be completely wrong. But I just, for some reason, that's kind of what I read in this movie. And I guess, to be honest with you, like, I've thought about this movie a lot for kind of the simple premise that it has in its limited scope. It's just really easy to kind of think about all these characters because there's not many people to have to worry about. So you're like, wait a minute. What about this? What about this? 
oh, I like this. You know, oh, that was tense. Like, I thought about this movie. Like, I watched it earlier in the week, and then I watched it again, and I'm like, thought about it the whole time I, like, after the first time I watched it, I was like, okay, I want to watch it again, because I've got to see it um, again, because I, you know, it just had resonated with me so much, because, I, you know, I guess it's the violence, but again, it's just, these characters are motivated, and they're all really crappy people, but you do kind of root for the boyfriend, and but then you're like, no, maybe I'm going to root for the girlfriend, and you're like, no, because she's a liar. And then you're like, <laughs> you were rooting for the mom. And then yeah. you, there's a point where the father is saying, look, I didn't do any of this. The thing that kicked it all off, it's it's the one thing, again, you're not totally sure. Because when the topic comes up, even when his partner shows up and he's saying, hey, the reason why this guy's here is he showed up thinking I did this to my daughter. And they're like, well, well did you? Well, did you? Yeah. I, I think it's funny because nobody automatically takes his word for it because they know what type of character he yeah, is. Yeah, the type of person he is. So, like, it, again, like, if, if if someone is accused of raping their daughter and you have to, there's a hint of, like, wait, could that person actually do it? That person is a monster. Yeah, well, even though, right? even his wife is like, well, yes. did, you, did you do it? Yeah. So he's like, no. And what's funny is, not funny, but I, I think the interesting twist to his character is of all of the bad stuff that he's done, this might be the one thing he never did, but yet it's the one thing that he's going to pay the price for. Yes, exactly. Which is crazy. Again, I think that makes a, an interesting story, and it makes that to me was the most interesting part of the movie was the fact that his ultimate punishment was for something that he actually did not do. Yes. Well. <laughs> he says he didn't do, he, and she said she did, but yeah. So well, and. and her motivation is, well, you didn't do this, but you still created an environment that was just as bad as that. Yeah. So who knows? You can't like, much less trust anybody in the film. Maybe the boyfriend. But even then... Just because of his naivete sort of attitude. I mean, even even when she shows up, he still thinks that she was right. I mean, there's like, he doesn't not believe her until she basically says, no, it didn't happen. Yes. So well, it's again, it's interesting. I think that's a great question. If, if the director were here, I, I would like to ask him that question. How did the me too movement affect any of the choices that you made within the, the filming any. or the screenplay or if any, or did it yeah. have an effect at all? Cause I think that's, that's a valid question. And it's probably one of those things where when it came out at the time, I don't know. Do do you think that the reason why it didn't do so well in Russia or it didn't get the theatrical push was because at the time that this was coming out and the subject matter, Me Too was really come off the ground and somebody looked at this film and went, nope, we're not pushing this thing out there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like if Girl with a Dragon Tattoo comes out in 2018, it does worse than it did when it originally came out, you know, like. We're we're kind of done with rape for a little bit. Well, yeah, as, and and if what you say, if somebody reads it the way that you said it and said, "Hey, this is sort of an anti Me Too statement," yes, where it's coming out and saying, "Don't believe everybody." I can definitely see that the timing of this film, as good as it is, may hurt it because it people are looking at it and saying, "Hey, look, you may not have meant to say this, but you put this out there in the public, and people are going to assume you meant to say this, so you're getting a very small release." And for those that maybe saw it at that time period, because again, I, I saw it two years after. So I hate to say this, but 
Me Too is really important. It's just not it, it's not getting the media coverage that it was two, three years ago. Yeah. Which is kind yeah. of sad. Well, we got pandemic and <laughs> I know. You know people trying to steal elections. It's, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so. I, it's all, man, 2020 sucks. But yeah. no, that's, that's a great question. I, n- I never looked at it from that perspective. But now that you brought it up, I, I think that was probably one of the reasons why it didn't really get circulation or even do yeah. well because the timing of the release just didn't play well in, in terms of the societal conversation at that time. Yeah, yeah. I feel bad, though, because we told everybody, like, I don't know, 15 minutes ago, stop listening. That was a really good conversation. So, um, I, I, you know, I got to tell you, the thing that I love the most about it in, in terms of its overall feel is you, you get a little bit of a checkoff play, very very Russian sort of stage play, yes. family drama, et cetera. Yes. But at its core, it's Russian neo-noir, and it's mixed with a spaghetti Western vibe throughout the whole thing. So from the neo-noir side of things, which we love – you get the grizzled detective, right? The femme fatale, characters haunted by the past. You get all the Money. greed, paranoia, pessimism. It, the difference is you don't get it in the stark black and white sort of German expressionist photography. You get it in oh, this bright green and, green and, red. and red, right? Yeah, Very Christmassy. Yeah. And then on the spaghetti, you you clearly see he is um, influenced by Sergio Leone. You get the Ennio Morricone score throughout tidbits of the film yes. and then you get a duel that is right out of the good, the bad and the ugly, that standoff sequence the standoff, yes. between the three of them. And we can't, we should not gloss over the music in this movie is pretty spectacular. It, it, it helps so much that the music is good and, and plays along with every scene that it's with, you know, when it's gotta be hyping up, it does when it, you know, when it's not needed, it's very soft. It's, it's, it's perfect. The music in this movie is really good. So here's the question I have for you. Okay. I wrote this down. I, I feel like it has a satisfying conclusion. I love the pacing of the film. I enjoy I enjoy the flashbacks. The flashbacks and how they use it. It's fantastic. This is a single location that is a bit of a mystery. Mm-hmm. And I feel this was the movie Tarantino wanted to make when he was making hateful eight but he couldn't yeah well hateful eight is uh, a sore subject for me <laughs> so um <laughs> it's the one of his films that i just don't vibe with at all I, I i have a huge problem with hateful eight there are parts i think that are brilliant um but i think that is tarantino smelling his own farts too much and kind of believing his own hype to the point where it's just when we talk about scope Hateful Eight, like, it, it just goes, the scope is too big. Um, See, I, and I, I, never, I never saw it from scope, but I'll just use the flashback sequence in Hateful Eight. When it happens and when there's the big reveal of what's going on before everybody shows up in, into the cabin, right? Yeah. The flashback acts as the, the next plot point. But it doesn't really help me with anything else from character development or motivation. It just reveals that, hey, they've been there the whole time. It's a big they're reveal. Yeah, they're underneath the... The floorboards. The floorboards, yeah. Whereas, again... Which we saw that, you know, like we, we talked about Inglorious Bastards. Like, we saw that with yes. Shoshana and her family underneath the floorboards much better. Obviously, you know, it's different, but, you know... 
you can do those reveals a lot better than that the way they did it in Hateful Eight. It was just it was too twisty for me, if that makes sense. No, it does. Well, I, I guess my question was if you if you hold this up against Hateful Eight, and in my head I'm like, wow, Tarantino wished he made this one, or or took all of the things that made this work in terms of the flashback sequences. This one is so twisty as well. It has a ton of twists, and it works. But did you do you feel like even this film compared to Hateful Eight? Here's an up and coming filmmaker who takes tarantino and out tarantino's tarantino versus well reservoir dogs though i mean to be to be fair i mean those flashbacks are brilliant they are but i mean again tarantino's been making films much longer than well longer than this guy's been alive right yeah yes so what what happened (laughs) compared to somebody who's watching his work and saying yeah "Yeah, I, i can do a little bit better one misstep is not like saying that Oh, I know. All of a sudden, this guy's better than... The rest of his filmography is pretty damn good. It's perfect. Yes. It's perfect. I don't know. That's the first thing that came to mind is because I'm with you. Hateful Eight has a couple of brilliant moments in it. But overall, I find it bloated. I don't like the flashback. There's that sequence when the flashback comes up and and I just check out. I go, nah, doesn't work for me anymore. Whereas in this one, I think uh, this director had a lot of opportunity to make the same mistakes Tarantino did in Hateful Eight, but avoids all of them. Yeah. No. I I'm just I'm a fan, man. <laughs> I love I no, love this I, director, I, man. I, I I mean I wouldn't say I mean I've seen one movie, so it's like I can't Oh he's only know, made one movie. Yeah, but I can't like put the stamp of approval on him just yet. Oh come on Let man. Us, this he is, came out this swinging. Movie, this movie does yes, yes. He hits a home run with his first movie. That doesn't mean you put him in the Hall of Fame. All right. Yeah. Rookie? Rookie of the year? It could be. <laughs> Again. All right. Well, what, what else Doug do you Butch- have about this film? Because I, I feel like I've just gushed over it. Um, I learned about handcuffs and how they work. Yeah. I, I loved everything in terms of the I performances. I do love, I love the partner's kind of subplot. Um, I don't want that to get lost with his wife. And there's this whole thing with this money. And... It's it's one of those things where that plays out pretty well. Now, I, I one of the things I did want to ask you is, does a having a higher pain tolerance means you can't die? Does that what is that what we're supposed to believe? I don't know. I was thinking about that when I watched it the second time because when you think about all of the things that happened to the boyfriend, he should be dead like six times. Well, hence the title. Why don't you just yeah, die? Exactly. But we learned that like. Oh no, he just has a really high pain tolerance. You know, he can. He one time passed out for twelve minutes. It's hard to stop movie, for twelve minutes and yeah, came right yes. back. You know, this time it's seventeen minutes. But I'm like, that doesn't mean you don't die. Maybe you just don't feel as bad, but you you still would die. Um, so again, it's like, well, he gets he gets knocked around. So obviously he's got he, a concussion because yes. he got a, a TV hit him in the head, right? Yes. He got his and he leg plays drilled. that well. Like you yeah. know, you definitely see him in pain, and he, like the after effects of so many headshots. But even like the partner gets a shotgun to the gut, falls to the ground, gets is, up. You think dead, and gets up and talks for a while, then dies. So it's like at, at some point in time, I really thought there's going to be this twist where, like, something with the, this apartment was like. 
I don't know, in hell or something, so people couldn't die. Like, I was trying to, like, put all this together, because I'm like, even, like, the father hitting his head, like, every time you see the father and you see this huge spot on the back of his head, I'm like, that could probably kill you. So I'm like, can people just not die in this apartment, and that's the thing? Like, once or, you set foot in this apartment, you just don't die? We've seen Rocky Four. So we have to assume Russian people are just tougher than everybody else. Yeah, they're just so roided up they just can't die. I was say roided up, just well, good birthing, right? They're super Ivan tough. was yeah, and even like the girlfriend gets shot in the neck, and you know she's bleeding out and still able to talk. Which I think if you get shot in the neck, I, I don't. Well, you think get that arterial lone wolf and yeah. cub spray out of it. Yeah. Uh, again. I mean, it's very like Kill Bill sort of ish, where yeah. you know the the blood just like, spews out. Um, I thought the blood looked really dark in this movie. Like it wasn't red; it was like a black. So I don't know. No, it, it, nothing like. Yeah. yeah. Again, I think it goes back to that discussion of violence. How he goes from cartoony, super stylized, super gruesome. You you talk about her death sequence. You get a little bit of poetry in that. Even there's a sequence where in the bathroom the blood is everywhere and you see water and blood mixed and you get this close-up shot and it's coming off of the faucet. It looked so cool. Yeah. It, it, he uses all of the violence and he uses all of those sequences, I think to basically elicit a particular feeling or emotion for each character. Again, that's one of the things I like about it because most directors will stick to a form of violence or a way of depicting it on screen. And that's what you get for 90 minutes. What I find refreshing is this kind of bounces a little bit all over the place and it doesn't feel chaotic. It feels very purposeful, meaning you're going to get something very realistic here because what's coming at this section of the film, you have to believe what's coming out of his mouth or you have to believe the next sequence. This is going to be a bit more cartoony because we want to highlight the absurdist relationship between these two characters and then what's coming next. So, again, I, I can't say enough about the director's choice of this. And if you watch on the Blu-ray, the behind the scenes, that first 15 minute sequence, I really thought, wow, they had to do a lot of choreography. The way it goes is they just got into a gym and had a bunch of mats and they practiced for a day or two. And he storyboard the whole sequence out. And just after a couple of dress rehearsals, they're like, okay, let's film it. Huh, and they, wow. they do a fantastic use of wire work and everything in terms of moving people. I mean, every time somebody gets hit with a shotgun in a small apartment, they're flying all <laughs> over the place. Again, it's very absurd. But for the moment that it occurs, I, I think it makes total sense. Yeah. And, okay, I get the Tarantino sort of motif with mm -hmm. this movie, the thing you don't get is, like, the dialogue. There's... The dialogue of this movie is pretty... It's sort sparse. of minimal. Yeah. So, I, to me, when I was going in thinking, oh, this is a Tarantino-esque Russian film, I was thinking, oh, you know, the dialogue's just going to be bang, 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 bang. It's not like that. It's more of kind of that... Um, well, you get it in love. spots. You do, but it's not, you know, no one's talking about Madonna in, you know like a virgin or anything like that. There's nothing sort of that puts you like what time period this is or anything like that. It's, you know, no pop culture references. It's just basically what's going on with these characters and nothing else. Well, and I'm not saying the dialogue is bad. Oh no, it's not Tarantino esque. Yeah. I, I think, 
I think when even they put on the back of the cover and say it's Tarantino, Edgar Wright, Sam Raimi, I think that's all accurate. I'd, I'd put Sergio Leone on there too. This guy. Do you see the guy Ritchie a little bit? Oh, like, guy. Yeah, I'm sorry. That's yeah. the other one, Guy Ritchie. Yeah. I think this guy has seen all those films. Clearly, if you read any interviews with him, he is a film lover. He he has just taken it all in, and he is borrowing all these different, I don't know, sequences or styles. He's he's heavily influenced by all these filmmakers. Even I would put some Korean directors out there, um, and say, okay, he's he's seen all of this stuff. He's he loves it, and he's including it in his first feature film. And he's already at work. There was an interview I ran across that he did in April of this year when Arrow released this movie. And he's already working on a new screenplay and, and trying to get that off the ground. I'm sure COVID has you know delayed all of that stuff. But I really can't wait to see what he does from a second film. Because if he's able to bring all of this stuff, and I guess I have a question for you because you're the Tarantino. I mean, everything Tarantino falls in your lap, right? Do you feel that he is just copying Tarantino or is he taking it and saying, I'm going to make it my own a little bit? No, no. I honestly, like, if you wouldn't have said Tarantino, like, yes, I get a little bit of flavor of Tarantino, but this is definitely not like someone who just says, I'm going to make a Tarantino movie. This is definitely his own style. Like, there's even like these weird sound effects, like really kind of cartoony sound effects in this movie. And like this movie is a little bit more cartoony than anything that Tarantino would ever do. Yeah, and, um, and even you speak of the sound effects. It's more rainy in that sense. It is. Well, I Leone too. I mean, the yeah. sequence with the bullets when they're showing the bodies that that feels Leone to me. Yeah. So I, I don't know. I just I'm glad you said that because I never felt at one point this guy was trying to do a carbon copy of a director or screenwriter or auteur that he likes. You can see he's wearing his influences all over this film. Yes, exactly. But it still has his voice, his direction, everything else through this whole thing. And like yep. I said, I, if if he doesn't get Rookie of the Year for 2020 on this one or whatever year it came out, I don't know. I, to me, Do you, I know I know we talked on Kevin Hart remaking one of the films you picked, but like, could you see someone maybe make, doing an American remake of this movie? Like, what, why would you? Because it's in Russian. Oh, okay. People aren't going <laughs> to want to read Russian. Like, I'm sure somebody could. I I don't, I don't know. I don't know. You can make this movie for, again, you can make it for five million dollars and, and and give it a chance. It feels so Russian, though. That's the problem. Like Extreme Job, I I watch that and somebody says, "Hey, we're going to make that into an American film." I totally get it. Action comedy. It's big in scope. It worked fine over here. This one just feels Russian. And I don't know if it's the setting or if it's the characters. It's all the Russian motif. I mean, this feels a little Eastern Promises. I mean, it, yeah. it, it's it got everything that I think you would sort of assume comes along with Russian film making in general. It's just, it's just got a little bit of a Russian identity to it in, in how it handles itself. So... I'm sure somebody could make it into an American film, but I don't think it's going to be a direct port the way that I think Extreme Job might be. I don't think you can hit beat for beat the way this film does. Uh, yeah, yeah. But I'd like to see somebody try it. I mean, I, I'm actually one of the few. I don't get upset about remakes. So. No, because you can go back and watch this movie at any point in time. It doesn't er like when people remake <laughs> a movie, it doesn't erase this movie from history. I don't understand. I'm sorry. I'm not going to go down this hole, but 
it doesn't erase this movie. You can still go back and watch it. I agree. I agree. If you don't like the female Ghostbusters movie, you can always go back to the original. It's fine. I know. But, hey, look, what else would the internet have to yell about? They need something to yell about, right? So, Brad, um, I'm going to ask you the question. First time watch for you, this was your Christmas present for me. Really refreshing to not know anything about a movie. Because now, you know, at least something about what's coming out. You know? Sure. The next Christopher Nolan movie, I know that I'm going to watch, and I know what it's going to be like. Um, this was completely blind. Um, it is not a bomb for me, Troy. Oh, sweet. I will say it is hard to recommend this movie to everyone. Oh, yes, I agree. Because of, because of the violence. it's There is a part where someone is getting tortured, and it is not as bad as someone eating spaghetti at a table, apparently. <laughs> oh, but, my God. you know, it's... Uh, <laughs> It's 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 tough. So it's not a bomb. I, I really like this movie. I appreciate the gift from you. I will watch this again. Um, so yeah, I, I agree. I think obviously not a bomb for me. I love it. It's one of my big discoveries in 2020 that didn't come out this year. I'm with you. I wouldn't recommend this blindly to everybody. It's almost like you got to ask him a quiz, and you'd run through some films and go, "Do you like this kind of movie?" How do you feel about just cartoony violence or violent? You know, Reservoir Dogs is a great comparison. I would start there and go, did you like Reservoir Dogs? What did you think about the ear scene? Did that really just upset you to the point that, okay. That's tame compared to some of this. And I wouldn't even stop there. There would be a couple other movies. You know, Kill Bill would be another one. But if you can go through Tarantino and go, yep, I like that. If you go through Edgar Wright stuff even and say, what do you think about this stuff? Hot Fuzz is a good example. Hot Fuzz, I think people forget how gory that film is. Yeah. If if you like that type of filmmaker, if you like dark comedy, that's the other thing. You have to you have to appreciate dark comedy. Then this is right in your wheelhouse. And I'm so glad Arrow put a lot of love and attention into this thing. And I cannot wait for the next movie from this guy. I mean, yeah, I, I Kirill Sokolov, just hurry up. Why don't you release your next movie? That's what I'm asking. No, so. I, yeah, I agree with that. Like, I will watch this director's next movie again without even knowing what it is. I'll just watch it because he's got me intrigued. Absolutely. I'm not going to put him in the Hall of Fame, Troy, but he's got me intrigued. I, man, I'm, I'm rushing to get him in. <laughs> see? Ah. <laughs> see what I did there? Uh, and I didn't even do that on purpose. That's just me being stupid. Okay, so, Brad, we got one more episode that we're going to do in 2020. Oh, God. It's your pick. We're ending on episode 29 for this year. What, what do you got for us? Yeah, so I got a film that was originally supposed to come out in April of 2018. Holy cow. Um, it is directed by uh, Josh Boone. It is New Mutants. Holy um, cow. Yeah. Well, you can't really go through 2020 and talk about films that uh, were we're we're kind of affected by covid and not talk about new mutants so um and that makes two theatrical movies that we've picked from disney more or less yeah yeah well this was 20th century fox because it happened so long ago (laughs) right they started making this movie in 2017 that is crazy yes um i have not seen this yet i bought it when it came out and i'm just i knew we were doing it for this month because I had said, Hey, we're doing this cause I want to watch it. And 
yeah, I don't know what to expect. Um, I, I think it's interesting. So like my theatrical pick for the month, I picked Mulan. And if you go on the internet, there's just, it's half and half. I'm surprised. Well, with Mulan, I found more people hated it than liked it. And New Mutants, I if I remember correctly, it's going to fall into that same camp. There are a lot of people who, I don't know if they started their own YouTube channels to throw a lot of hate at the New Mutants. But a lot of people just didn't care for this one. And it'll be interesting to talk about because you picked a film, you know, compared to this one where we just kind of glossed over how this thing got made and what happened behind the scenes. Just like Milan, New Mutants has a very interesting history leading up to the release this year. Yes. Yes. That's a great pick. You know, I've liked the the new X-Men sort of series they've done since, like, First Class – you know, I think they've gotten after anything after like Day of Future Past. I think it's been diminishing returns. I will, I will go to bat for Apocalypse. I will not go to bat for that Dark Phoenix movie. But again, I haven't seen New Mutants yet, so I, I don't know what's going on with it. Um, I do like the cast, but <laughs> that was I like the cast from three years ago. So we'll see what happens. <laughs> okay. Well, Brad, that is a great pick. I can't wait for next week. And I think we're going to have John on. He's our comic book He's our comic book nerd. Yeah. And you and I both, full disclosure, we really don't know much about this series at all, right? At least I don't. I don't. Okay. I I read the New Mutants, the the latest Marvel series, which is pretty good. But this is coming from, I think, the story, an earlier issue or story arc but john's got all the info so we're, we're making sure we're bringing somebody who actually knows this content because you and i are not the experts in 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 mutants no 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 we're not so this will be our last one of 2020 so it'll be exciting everyone, everyone hang in there we're <laughs> okay. almost done well um, hey if somebody wants to send us some more feedback questions and Kevin, thank you so much. That was a great way to start an episode. Fantastic question. But Brad, if anybody else wants to send us some information and you know, maybe they've seen our pick this week, why don't you just die, have a different take on it, or maybe they listened and stopped and didn't listen to the spoilers and discovered it and want to share their thoughts, how do they get a hold of us? Yeah, that's a, a notabombpod at gmail.com. I will tell you, Troy, there are sometimes I just like to – just Google like title podcast just to see like how many people have talked about a movie and just see like, you know, go through seven or eight pages just to see how many, we might be the first podcast to talk about this movie. <laughs> Are you I serious? did not find anyone. I Googled it. So, wow. Uh, yeah. Hey, that makes me feel that good. might help. That might help for our SEO. So, okay. Um, Instagram, not a bomb pod at not a bomb pod at uh, Twitter. Um, look for us on Facebook. Um, Troy's been doing a really good job of kind of posting stuff he finds when he's doing research. Um, yeah, I didn't post a lot on this one. There's not much Yeah, there's out not there. a whole lot. But, you know, we both kind of – it was kind of nice just to be able to watch a movie and just kind of kind of theorize about what's going on because you really don't have anything to go off of. So, you know, yeah, I, new, I, put I, think, on, I put on my film critic hat that I had – when I took a few classes at UK, so. <laughs> it paid off, man. Yeah. I like it. Well, uh, I've had an awesome, I'm so happy. I was, I was worried all week because I sent you this. It was a Merry Christmas type thing, and I was really hoping you weren't coming back and going, ah, I hated it. Total bomb. Why, why did, 
I'm going to go use this <laughs> as a coaster now. So super excited you like it. I'm really excited to talk about next week's movie. I have seen it. It was, I don't know if it was the movie that I went and tested going to the movies, but I think it was either the second one or it might have been the first one. I have to go back and maybe jog my memory a little bit. And uh, I'm, I'm excited because I will get to spend all of this week reading all the hate about the new mutants. <laughs> yes. and, and I find that actually a lot of fun. Uh, so I'm, great pick for next week. Well, Brad, uh, the next time we get together, it will actually be after Christmas. Yeah, so Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to you. Happy holidays to everybody. I hope during this crazy pandemic and these crazy times, you are getting some quality family time together and you get a little R&R, no matter what holiday that you're celebrating. We are super appreciative you come to listen to us and, um, I don't know, hear us ramble. I'm excited, like three weeks. I don't have to work for like three weeks. I'm so excited. Oh, you're so lucky. So Uh, lucky. So great. All right. Well, I don't know if you're listening in the morning, the afternoon, or evening. I hope your day's going awesome. And please come back next week and hear us talk about the new mutants with our bestest friend, John. And with that, have an awesome day. Thank you. Have a nice day. 